Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer, Fred, Fred Hoffman. Yes, welcome to yet another chapter of the ongoing California saga, Whiskeys for Drinking, Waters for Fighting. There are water war battles going on throughout the state right now. Proposed reductions of farm deliveries of San Joaquin River flows has many powerful ag groups up in arms. The November ballot features a bond measure to repair the Friant-Kern Canal, the flow of which is the victim of subsiding land. And tucked away in the Cuyama Valley, local farmers there are battling big agricultural interests for the shrinking supply of water in that area's aquifers. All that, crop reports, and a lot more on this week's KST. Farm Hour. Let's get started. The State Water Resources Control Board has released the Bay Delta Water Quality Control Plan Supplemental Environmental Document. In it, the State Water Resources Control Board is calling for twice as much water flow down the Tuolumne, Stanislaw, and Merced Rivers in an effort to save salmon. This will affect the flows of the San Joaquin River and its three tributaries and calls for a diversion target of 40% of uninterrupted flows with a permitted diversion range of 30 to 50% depending on conditions. Though previous requirements to increase flows have largely failed to recover native fish populations, the plan indicates diversions are necessary from February 1st to June 30th annually. An analysis by the California Farm Bureau Federation showed that farmers in the Stanislaw, Tuolumne, and Merced River watersheds would lose an average of 350,000 acre-feet of water per year under the board's proposal. In dry years, losses would increase to approximately 800,000 acre-feet. Other agricultural interests were quick to weigh in. Elaine Trevino is the president of the Almond Alliance of California. She says this decision flies in the face of an overwhelming amount of science that the approach of putting more water down the river simply has no merit. The final public comment period is now open until July 27th with final adoption scheduled for August 21st. Long before July's edition of USDA's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates, this policy, as explained by World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Seth Meyer, has been in place. We don't take rumor, we don't take comments that the country may say that they may do something. We take policy that is formally announced and in place. Which means that once China announced its placement of tariffs on some U.S. ag exports earlier this month, then that became incorporated in the WASDI, like what happened in June when Mexico announced tariffs on U.S. pork. So interest was high in the latest supply and demand estimates and in indicators what impacts these tariffs might have. Agriculture Department Chief Economist Rob Johansson said notable was projected U.S. soybean exports as month over month. Overall exports of whole beans is down, assumed by about 250 million bushels. As increased competition from Brazil and Argentina, coupled with China's tariffs on soybeans, is expected to impact our export opportunities. This led USDA to lower its season-ending average price for beans from the previous month by 75 cents a bushel. And Seth Meyer says the soybean price adjustment is impacting another commodity. The market does this as well. You got to keep a little bit of a balance between corn and beans. Which is why USDA lowered corn prices 10 cents a bushel at the midpoint in July, despite strong export business and tightening U.S. corn supplies. Another commodity facing tariff impacts, pork, as both Mexico and China have duties in place. However, as Chief Economist Johansson notes, projected pork surpluses due to increased hog production led USDA in the July WASDI to lower the price of hogs by $1.50, and that lower price is helping to increase demand for pork across global consumers. Reflected in strong export business for U.S. pork in markets like South Korea and Australia. 
China has also placed tariffs on some U.S. milk exports, such as products with nonfat dry milk and dry whey. And World Board Chair Meyer says in the July U.S. milk supply and demand estimates, Our thoughts on exports of those products down a little bit in 18 and more sharply in 19. And that's the kind of stuff that China is having an impact on in terms of our exports for skim solid basis. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue has said this several times over the last couple of weeks. He repeated it the other day on his Georgia tour. If we can't have some resolution on trade by Labor Day, then we need to look at uh, mitigation procedures and protections for ag producers. But to do that, you have to estimate how much of any price movement for any crop was actually due to the trade disruption and not a dozen other factors. It is going to be very difficult to estimate. Ohio State University agricultural economist Carl Zuloff. Now, of course... We have econometric procedures, analytical procedures that can give us some idea, but it's really going to be hard. And he says once you get a damage number, especially as early as Labor Day... It's a number that's going to have a lot of uncertainty around it. Actually, it may not be one number for damage, but several of them, a number for each U.S. ag product on which there have been imposed tariffs, and the damage even for one product might vary depending on the regions the products come from. For example, a product grown in the West might be more likely to have been exported to China and the Asian markets than the same product coming from the East. So let's say we do have some kind of damage numbers. Then... The question will be what can be done administratively under existing law and what will Congress potentially have to enact? We've heard the Ag Department does have some existing authority to use commodity credit corporation funds to buy some U.S. ag products and make up for what's not going to China, for example. However, Zulov told us... Existing authority may work for some commodities. It may not work for other commodities. And then you have the question of how does Congress move to give the authority? Does it do it through separate legislation? as an amendment to some other bills, such as the appropriations bill. And so there's lots of process questions that are also going to have to be worked out. And because of the uncertainty on that damage number, because most of the tariffs were only imposed the first week of July, Carl Zuloff says maybe, just as it does with certain disaster payments, USDA could decide to give producers only a partial compensation payment early on and then wait for the rest. Because a year from now, We will have a much better feel for what the damage is because exports will have shifted. Prices will have figured out what they've got to do. And who knows, he says, hopefully agreements on trade will be made quickly, tariffs will come off, and losses to farmers will be minimal. We'll see. In Washington, Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture. A weather whipsaw. That's what many climatologists are predicting for the future of California's cherry-growing region, the Central Valley, during bud and bloom stage. More atmospheric rivers, more wild swings in temperature during the winter, lack of chill hours. It all adds up to a questionable future for the state's cherry growers. That, according to Sacramento County Farm Advisor Chuck Engels. It's predicted, as uh, recently predicted, that we'd have these precipitation whiplashes and uh, where drought alternates with intensely rainy winters. We're, we're going to, in the future, have more extremes. And cherries, unfortunately, are predicted to not weather those very well because of their sensitivity to bloom time conditions and pre-bloom conditions. So it's going to be challenging for cherry growers. 
Earlier this year, a February heat wave caused cherry trees to start bud break early. A late February hard freeze then set the trees back, reducing the number of available blossoms. Combined with a lower-than-usual chill-hour total, as well as pummeling rains that left standing water in the orchards, the 2018 California cherry crop is down, but far from out. Most shippers believe the California cherry crop will fall between 4.5 million and 7 million cartons. That's down from more than 9 million cartons in 2017. Here's this week's California crop report. Summer beans and cotton were irrigated in Tulare. Corn for silage was tasseling and developing ears. Alfalfa is being irrigated, cut, and baled. Rice is developing well in the Sacramento Valley. It's being treated for armyworm. Winter wheat continues to be harvested. The grape bunches continue to improve in color. Grape vineyards are being irrigated. Table grape harvest began in Tulare County. Peaches, nectarines, apricots, figs, and plum harvest was in full swing. Early pears are being harvested. Stone fruit orchards are being sprayed, irrigated, and fertilized. Summer pruning and topping of harvested stone fruit orchards continues. Kiwi vines were showing good growth. Valencia oranges were harvested. Citrus packers were color sorting as citrus greening was more prevalent due to higher temperatures. Grapefruit is being harvested. New citrus orchards were planted. Almonds, walnuts, and pistachio orchards are being irrigated. Pesticides and fungicides were applied to some almond groves. Mechanical and chemical weed controls are ongoing. Pistachio nuts were progressing well. Brussels sprouts and squash were progressing well in San Mateo County. Sweet corn was harvested in San Joaquin. Cucumbers, eggplant, pepper, squash, and zucchini are being harvested in Tulare County. Rangeland and non-irrigated pasture deterioration continues. Lower elevation range and non-irrigated pasture were rated poor to fair. Rangeland conditions were better at higher elevations. Cattle were provided supplemental feed to compensate for the declining nutritional value of the rangeland. Sheep grazed on retired cropland. Bees are active in sunflower and melon fields. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator such as iTunes. Central California is slowly collapsing under its own weight as more groundwater is used, emptying vast subterranean aquifers and disrupting one of the state's key water delivery networks. It's called subsidence, and in the San Joaquin Valley, that's nothing new. It's been happening since at least the 1920s. But during the recent five-year statewide drought, it accelerated at a record pace, taking infrastructure like bridges and roads down with it. One of the casualties is the Friant-Kern Canal. That's a gravity-operated concrete waterway. It stretches 152 miles down the valley's eastern side, supplying Fresno and smaller cities, as well as thousands of farmers. The Sacramento Bee reports that along 25 miles in Tulare County, that canal has sunk so far that its carrying capacity has been cut in half. The choke point created at the town of Terrabella is where the canal has slipped two feet between 2015 and 2017. That's preventing 60% of the canal's water from reaching farms and cities 50 miles downstream. Repairing the Friant-Kern Canal, which was built during the Truman administration, would cost something like $350 million paid for by taxpayers. And by the way, that's on the November ballot. It was 2017, the year of the disasters. You really see the degree of devastation. We are seeing catastrophic flooding. The worst wind.
end event we've probably ever had. There are swift water rescue teams coming in from all over the country. And so that's how it went last year, and we didn't even throw in the huge wildfires. So as a farmer, did you suffer losses last year because of the effects of hurricanes and wildfires? If so, sign up is open now at your local farm service agency office for the Wildfire Hurricane Indemnity Program. Known as WHIP for short. Under Agriculture Secretary Bill Northey told us uh, you'll need to come into the office to apply for this one. Many producers, of course, already deal with USDA. They have a lot of the needed information in the system. Some producers, though, may not have crop insurers, may not ever deal with USDA programs, so they will have to provide how many acres they farm, where those acres are at, a production history, and then the losses that were suffered last year as well. In all cases, though, Bill Northey says we're going to make it as painless as possible. We'll have a lot of that information that will be ready there to be able to walk a producer through, but we do need them to be able to come into the office. Uh, And in some cases, if that information's there, we're hoping uh, that it may even be able to be done in one visit to the office. Uh, But we need them to be able to sign up, validate that information. And there may be some cases where they need to go back home and get a little bit more information to come in and and finish the application process. One major caveat here is that in order to get compensation from this program, you will have to promise to buy crop insurance at the 60% level for the next two years. Now, once you've gotten the application okayed and ready to go into the system within a very short time... There'll be an initial payment of uh, what's expected to be 50% of the coverage of the loss for that WIP program. Now, Northy anticipates after sign-up ends, there probably will be another payment. But we'll have to wait to see how much sign-up there is compared to how many dollars were allocated. Sign-up is underway now, continues through November 16th. Gary Crawford for the U.S. Department of Agriculture, Washington. Spring and summer are fair seasons here in California. That means that 4-H'ers and FFA'ers will be having their backyard exhibition chickens on display. And with virulent Newcastle disease having been found with backyard exhibition chickens in Southern California in Los Angeles County, it's very important for chicken exhibitors to isolate their show chickens when they return home. But what exactly do we mean by isolation? Cherie Sintas-Glover is a UC-certified poultry health inspector. She offers these tips for good isolation. A really ideal isolation or quarantine area would mean that, number one, that it is isolated. It's away from the rest of the flock that might be at that poultry owner's home, you know, full time. It also would be in a different, um, situated in a different area to where the poultry owner can go to that area specifically and not have to walk through their normal chicken yard. Because remember, things like Newcastle can spread through shoes. And in that area, it's kind of almost like a separate coop, um, your quarantine coop. And it will have food, it will have water, and it will have everything that 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 bird needs for the next two weeks. And all bird owners should report sick birds or unusual bird deaths through California Sick Bird Hotline at 866-922-BIRD. That's 866-922-2473. Tariffs. Those formerly put in place by China and earlier Mexico on some U.S. ag goods were the focus of many when it came to the export picture within USDA's July World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates. Yet also noted within the latest WASDI was the various ag export opportunities presenting themselves in the present, even beyond, due to conditions around the globe. 
World Agricultural Outlook Board Chair Seth Meyer says one example involves U.S. wheat export projections, up 25 million bushels from the previous month and 74 million bushels from the previous year. We made a lot of a downward adjustments, dropped world production outside of the United States about 10 million metric tons. Problems with production in Australia, the European Union, Russia, Ukraine, based upon what we've seen of weather. Likewise, U.S. corn exports in April and May reached record-high territory, thanks in part to decreased global competition due to lower weather-related crop production and export forecasts for Russia, Argentina, and particularly Brazil. The crop down a million and a half metric tons is their 1718 crop. That's their second crop corn, though, which comes off in the months right before our own. So the fact that that crop is smaller provides more opportunity to do exports. And when we talk about the U.S. balance sheet, we've been having very strong counter-seasonal exports. Even among commodities facing export tariffs, Meyer says there are some potential trade opportunities. Mexico currently has tariffs in place on U.S. pork products, yet he notes lower price caused by increased supplies as well as specific product in demand in the Mexican market. When it comes to Mexico, it's between our fresh product at tariff and the Europeans' frozen product. We think we can still, if priced right, do some business into Mexico. It's just going to have to be priced right to move that product. China's import tariff on U.S. soybeans in place, combined with increased Brazilian and Argentinian production, is expected to lower whole bean exports into that market. Yet Meyer says... We have things like crush jumping up a little bit now. This is based upon the space made in the global soybean meal market because crush margins in Argentina and Brazil are going to look pretty poor. Those bean prices are awful high for those crushers because you can sell those beans to China, whereas our bean prices are being pushed down, so our own crush margins look very, very good. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. USDA's Risk Management Agency not only runs crop insurance programs, it has nearly $9 million in grant money to help farmers learn more about the importance of managing risk. USDA's Risk Management Agency has what we call the Risk Management Education Program, where we uh, make available funds for different groups who apply for them to do risk management education in, in two different categories. That was RMA Administrator Martin Barbary. One is the Crop Insurance Education in Targeted States programs. That is related to states where there is a distinguished low level of federal crop insurance participation, maybe lack of availability of products. More than half of the grant money, or nearly $5 million, will go to trying to reach these underserved areas. Mainly it's just states where there's just not as much production on a large scale. You know, there's smaller producers, maybe smaller, more niche crops where there just aren't as many products available and there just isn't much participation. The other category covers developing general crop insurance education nationwide. We're trying to educate those producers on the options available to them. We have the new whole farm revenue protection plan, which producers, are, I think, are somewhat not familiar with yet, and, and we're hoping to get some more education out on that plan. He gives some details about the whole farm revenue protection program. It's based on revenue of your whole farm. You have to have multiple crops to qualify for whole farm, and it's more targeted to producers who are very diversified, you know, have several different crops, maybe two or three different livestock enterprises. And what's new this year? RMA, we're using feedback from past participants. We're extending the award period for performance from 12 to 18 months to allow those groups that are presenting to work around crop years, work around busy seasons, so they can get more producers involved. 
organizations like universities, cooperative extension offices, or nonprofit groups that promote risk management education are encouraged to apply. In the last year's program, we had nine new recipients of grants, which creates the opportunity for those grants and education to be presented in different areas of the country. So we're always looking for new presenters, new organizations to take these education grants and use them in different areas of the country. The deadline to apply for a risk management education grant is July 30th. For a complete list of targeted states or to find out more information about the program, go online to rma.usda.gov. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The $201 billion 2018-2019 state budget signed by Governor Brown includes $671 million for the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Their spending plan includes $130 million to combat climate change, $15 million for citrus pest and disease prevention, $1.8 million for a new program designed to improve the health and survival of honeybees, $28 $28 million for cannabis licensing and enforcement here in California, $2.6 million for the use of antimicrobial drugs on livestock, $15 million for the California Nutrition Incentive Program, as well as the Healthy Store Refrigeration Program, and $139,000 for the Farmer Equality Act of 2017, a program designed to improve the inclusion of socially disadvantaged farmers and ranchers in state and federal farming programs. Our national forests play an instrumental role in assuring water quality and quantity for all of us. What is one way stakeholders can work together to promote healthy forests, protect them from wildfire threats, and improve water quality and supplies? A bond. And as Todd Gardner of the World Resources Institute explains, yes, bond can be defined on multiple levels. There is the public-private partnerships that come together on such projects, as well as the funding mechanism involved. So how can we think about funding from the U.S. Forest Service that might be coupled with funding from a water utility and a state agency, maybe a ski resort? All of those entities benefit from healthier forests and better water quality and more water security. What this has led to is a project financed by what Gardner calls a forest resilience bond. And the forest resilience bond is an innovative way to bring all of those groups together and if they each pay a little bit you can actually get a lot of work done. And why this type of financing can be called a bond is... We're actually using private capital up front. So foundations, insurance companies, family offices, different types of investors are providing the money up front. And then all of those different groups, the Forest Service, water and electric utilities, companies, are paying back that investor, but over a longer period of time. So the work gets done now. And then the payback happens over a longer period of time, and we dramatically reduce the likelihood and impacts of fire. Really a win-win situation. The example of such a project, such a financing vehicle, is found in a Northern California watershed within the Sierra Nevada mountains. Pilot projects, about 15,000 acres, and most of the effort is to reduce the impacts of all of the wildfires that we're seeing across California and the West, and the hundreds of millions of dollars of impacts that all of those groups, the Forest Service, utilities, companies, are recognizing once those fires occur. Funding resources from stakeholders are pulled together in this project. 
to allow the Forest Service with its partners to restore a healthy forest system and reduce the likelihood of a major fire, which after a fire, all of the nasty stuff, the runoff, all ends up in our drinking water reservoirs. So this money is to reduce the likelihood and intensity of those fires and improve the water quality for those downstream users. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Whiskey's for drinking, water's for fighting, it's never as true as now. And the fighting continues. And this time, Harvard University is involved. We're talking with Jeremy Jacobs. He's a reporter that covers water stories and environmental stories for e e News and Greenwire. And in a story on July 16th, he tells the story of how Harvard University got involved in farming in a little-known California valley called Kuyama. And those of you who are farming on the eastern side of the San Joaquin Valley will be able to relate to this story. Yes, in the Kuyama Valley, their groundwater is disappearing as well. And Jeremy, it's good to talk with you. A great story that was in E&E News on July 16th about this little valley and its water issues, the Kuyama Valley. Tell us a little bit about that valley. This is a valley that is really an isolated, large-ish valley. Not large in, in comparison to San Joaquin Valley, but... It's a relatively large valley that sits about an hour's drive east of Santa Maria. Um, It's a long, slender valley at about 230 square miles that stretches, kind of winds southeast until it ends up south of Bakersfield. Uh, The only uh, highway that runs through there runs from Santa Maria over toward Bakersfield. That's the only main thoroughfare. It is an agricultural area now. Uh, In the late 1940s, there was oil discovered there. It became the fourth most productive region of the country and in, in, of the state, rather, in producing oil. Uh, but that eventually went bust, uh, leaving agriculture as the main industry there. And it's home to big companies like Grimway Farms, which is the world's largest carrot grower. Campbell Soup Company grows crops there. Uh, major agricultural players are there, and they use a lot of groundwater. Um, There is no deliveries from other parts of the state there. The valley floor only gets about seven inches of rain per year. And so according to the U.S. Geological uh, Survey, about 2.1 million acre feet have been taken out of that aquifer since 1949, leading to a water table drop of at least 300 feet. In some parts of uh, the valley, it's been seven feet a year. So we're talking about a pretty serious uh, depletion of an aquifer. Um, in a pretty prime, productive agricultural area. One of the families that you showcase in your article are growing grapes, and they're dry farming. They're only using enough water to mimic the amount of water that would fall from the sky in a normal year. And those are very desirable grapes to have. However, they may not be able to even get that 5% of water that they need uh, to do that if this project goes through. It's an agricultural project that was spearheaded by, of all things, Harvard University. Tell us about that. Sure. So this is one of the most interesting developments in, to come to the Kuyama Valley in a long time. Uh, the valley has, is sort of split uh, between the west side towards Santa Maria and the east side towards Bakerfield. Most of the agricultural production has happened on the east side of the valley. 
leaving the west side, mostly is dry rangeland that kind of looks like high desert. Uh, around 2014, a subsidiary owned by Harvard, uh, Harvard University's 36 or $37 billion endowment fund uh, purchased uh, 8,700 8, acres um, in the west side of the valley and began rapidly uh, installing conventional vineyards. Um, ultimately, they planted 850 acres. That vineyard is up and running, is growing now. Uh, you can't miss it because it, 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 you run right into it on the main road going through the valley. So some of the families that are on the West End have, have become concerned that the 14 wells that Harvard has drilled could affect their groundwater supply. Talk about the depth of those wells. Uh, how deep are they going, and what is the quality of water that's coming out of those wells? Now, that's a very good question, and one I don't entirely know the answer to. Um, this is one of the hurdles when you talk to people about groundwater is, for many people, it's a right on your private land, and the data that, that goes along with well operations uh, should be proprietary, or they believe should be proprietary. So this is one of the challenges as California attempts to implement the uh, Sustainable Groundwater Management Act of 2014, or SIGMA. The Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, as you pointed out, passed in 2014, but it's a slow implementation with 2020 or 2022 being the deadline for all sorts of uh, new rules and regulations to go into effect. One of the rules that is in effect, and it was one of the reasons SIGMA was able to pass, a lot of the control for what happens on a local level stays local. So these local groundwater management authorities can uh, interpret uh, the, the maps and, and do what they will uh, for the time being, can't they? Yeah, so this was a critical part of getting the law passed. It, it's, it, it's worth keeping in mind that there has been no law uh, or any regulation really uh, statewide addressing groundwater uh, use or depletion. This was the state's first attempt to do it. Of course, if you talk to experts, it basically took California 100 years to get to a point where it could pass a law uh, uh, involving regulating groundwater. And a key component or, or compromise that helped get the law passed that got local water authorities to back the law was that it would cede um, a lot of authority over coming up with these plans to sustainably manage aquifers and basins to so-called groundwater sustainable sustainability agencies or GSAs, um, and these are new government semi well they are governmental agencies that are established out of. Uh, enti entirely new in a lot of basins, and they have to come up with a plan by the end of twenty of January twenty twenty to to begin bringing the uh, their, these critically overdrafted basins into a sustainable level or sustainable practice. And I know that sounds that sounds actually kind of like a long time to get there by t January twenty twenty, and then you have twenty years over after that to um, to reach sustainability. But if you talk to these people, to people that are involved with this process, given that this, this is all brand new, these are not long deadlines, um, especially for this, this first part of coming up with plans. 
We're talking with Jeremy Jacobs. He's a reporter with Energy and Environment News. He had a story released on July 16th about the water woes of the Kuyama Valley, a long, narrow valley nestled in between Bakersfield and Santa Maria in the coastal range, a valley that gets very little rainfall and doesn't get any water except what's in the ground below them. And that water is disappearing. And of course, that water is now part of the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. And Jeremy Jacobs explains that the local agency in charge of implementing Sigma in that portion of California isn't made up of very many locals. There's sort of a couple stories in, in Kuyama, one being Harvard's development and how and if and how that will influence uh, the sustainability plan for the valley. Uh, the second being that what the valley has turned into, as far as who lives there, is what is sort of generally described as a disadvantaged community. It's three small towns. They're overwhelmingly poor. They're Hispan- and Hispanic communities um, that are mainly farm workers. And they, part of the law, directs GSAs to address how groundwater problems affect communities like this. And in Kuyama Valley, they are not represented on the board. They're talking to some locals there. They don't feel that they have a voice on the board. And so that's another issue that they that they are grappling with. What is the water quality for those residents now? What sort of problems have they been having since Harvard installed that vineyard? Well, it's important to note that you can't trace groundwater water quality problems directly to Harvard. So I don't want to I don't want to do that. Um, especially because where Harvard's, Harvard's main contention in all this is that they are getting their water from a walled off pocket of water that does not travel to other parts of the basin, which in and of itself is a, is a contentious assertion that will have to be ironed out. But the, where the towns are, which is east of where Harvard is, uh, in the towns like Kuyama and New Kuyama, their water quality hasn't been studied very much. Uh, the only studies that have been done by USGS, uh, the, that's the U.S. Geological Survey, um, have found high but not extraordinary high, but elevated levels of minerals, arsenic, um, other contaminants like that. If you talk to folks in the valley, they don't use their washing machines. Uh, they hardly ever use dishwashers because they say the water is too harsh on, on their appliances. So it's hard to say exactly what the water quality is, um, but it's certainly influencing um, the local community's lives. It's interesting that they don't have a handle on the the actual design of the aquifer there. That, that that wall you mentioned is contentious, whether it really divides the east from the west and it is its own separate pocket. But what can't be denied is the fact that the water table in the area is dropping precipitously. Yeah, absolutely. That's how I came to Kuyama. What I find most most interesting about this basin is it is completely walled off and isolated by by mountains. Uh, it doesn't get water deliveries. It's in that way. It's not like um, parts of the San Joaquin Valley, which are larger. Water gets moved around them in all sorts of different ways. And so the problems that they must address are rel- in Kuyama are relatively straightforward because. While it's hard to understand groundwater in a lot of ways, where there where there are faults, how it moves, how to measure it, how, what the quality of it is, it's all underground. It's it's hard to understand. But when it comes down to this law to create a sustainable management of the aquifer, there are really only two ways to go about it. 
either use less or bring in more and recharge it. And in Kuyama, the only real solution, well, they're going to have to use less. Uh, and they have to figure out how they're going to manage doing that. It's an isolated valley. It doesn't rain much there. Water can't be pumped in, so they're totally dependent on groundwater to grow their crops. And agriculture there has increased over the decades, hasn't it? I say in the story that it doubled and then doubled again. It was really the late 70s, early 80s, where some of the big players, largely based in Bakersfield, uh, came into the valley and, and started large industrial productions. But there have always been family farm operations in the area. Absolutely. And and some of these, when I say uh, they move, moved in, I don't mean to say that I, I, I don't mean to say that they pushed out anybody, really. Uh, some of the some of the these farms and businesses that are still in the valley uh, have been farming there uh, for for decades and, and several generations. But the operations have grown, continue to grow. Uh, and in many cases, uh, they've been sold in, many, in, in a lot of places in the valley. The land is leased to tenant farmers. Um, so it's, it, it's also not as though these are all mom and pop uh, farming operations there. Just like we see on the east side of the San Joaquin Valley, where former grazing land is being converted into nut orchards and water tables are dropping. The same is now happening and has been happening in the Kuyama Valley. In uh, Actually, it, it, the Kuyama Valley is uh, sort of at the junction of four counties, isn't it? That's right. It's, it's, it's at the intersection of Santa Barbara, uh, Kern, San Luis Obispo, and Ventura. Uh, Kern, uh, it should be noted, it only has a little piece of it, and none of it's irrigated. They're, they're kind of right there. It's right in the corner of Kern County, but they, they don't have uh, most of the uh, productive agriculture land is in Santa Barbara County. What is the next step? What happens now? So they have to keep moving forward. The GSA board um, has to keep moving forward in, in trying to create a sustainability plan um, by and submit it to the state by January 31st, 2020, um, at which point the state will review it. Now, under the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act, or SIGMA, uh, the state is the backstop. So if the uh, GSA, the Groundwater Sustainability Agency in Kiyama, they submit something that, that the state feels won't accomplish the goals of the law or won't achieve sustainability in 20 years, the state can step in and require changes. No one knows how that's going to work yet because this is all new. Uh, but that, but the state does act as a backstop. But and, but I, I should just say that if all the GSAs of these over, critically overdrafted basins across the state, including in the San Joaquin Valley, if they all turn in lackluster sustainability plans, and the amount of resources it would take for the state to review them and come up with changes and move forward would just further delay the goals of uh, uh, this law being implemented. It's a great article in E&E News by Jeremy Jacobs. It's entitled Thirsty Vineyard Big Ag Test Landmark Aquifer Law, referring to SIGMA, the Sustainable Groundwater Management Act. Jeremy, a pleasure talking with you, and thanks for a few minutes of your time. Anytime. Thanks so much. Travelers speeding down Interstate 5 or Highway 99 in the Sacramento Valley may be a bit perplexed about all the giant lakes by the side of those freeways. Well, those are rice fields. And contrary to what many non-farmers think, there's only a few inches of water in those lakes. 
and it stays in place thanks to the heavy clay soils in the area. The water efficiency of growing rice in such soils is little understood. That's why visitors to the State Fair right now at Cal Expo in Sacramento can find out a lot about this valuable commodity and how it's grown in our state when they visit the California Rice Commission's large display in Building A. Sutter County rice grower Michael Bosworth says the display is a great way to dispel a lot of myths about how rice is grown here. It's very important to um, reach out to uh, the urban uh, folks and and other uh, people that are living in our region about what we're doing on our farms and and, uh, how it benefits our region. Uh, A lot of times they're driving by rice fields and don't quite understand um, what's growing there, but I think through the exhibit maybe there's going to be some more education there that is going to highlight all the the rice fields that are in the Sacramento region and, and bring a little bit more awareness to what's in our area. And after you visit the rice exhibit in Building A, step out the back and you're at the farm at Cal Expo. That covers three and a half acres celebrating the importance of agriculture and food production in California. Here, visitors to the State Fair are able to learn more about 70 crops grown in California. They can taste local culinary delights prepared by chefs in the outdoor kitchen grill and learn about fish farming by visiting the aquaculture display. Also at the farm at Cal Expo during the State Fair, water-efficient gardens sponsored by the Department of Water Resources, gardening advice from the Sacramento County Master Gardener's Booth. Also, explore the greenhouse, learn about the California floral industry and the technology used to grow cut flowers. The farm is also home to a blacksmith booth, insect pavilion, and an urban farming exhibit where you can learn about backyard and container gardening. The State Fair is open daily through Sunday, July 29th at Cal Expo in Sacramento. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.